Well, Galatians 4 describes for us um, different ways to enter the family, uh, two different ways, really. It talks about growing up into the family and talks about being adopted into the family. And in the family that I grew up in, we actually experienced both of those models. Uh, I grew up an only child, and I really uh, kind of longed for a sibling, somebody to play with, to pick on, uh, to do all those fun things I saw my friends doing with their siblings. But my parents uh, were divorced, and so it didn't seem likely that any siblings were going to come along. Um, and so very early on, I started daydreaming about adoption. I started thinking about uh, this scheme where I would approach my mom, tell her that I had saved all my pennies in my piggy bank, and that I could help fund what I had heard cost some money, that an adoption would be expensive. So I wanted to help her with that. Um, not to mention that she didn't originate this idea at all, but I was going to fund it. And in the language that many children about that age use when they try to convince their parents to get a puppy, you know, I'll feed it, I'll walk it, I began thinking about a baby in those terms. Like, what would it be like if we got a baby? I would do all the work. I promise. But alas, it was not to be. Uh, well, my dad eventually remarried, and my stepmother, who contrary to every fairy tale that I had ever been told, is a delightful woman who I get along with so well. Um, she had never had children and longed to be a mother. And so as the years passed, uh, that dream may have faded for me, but it was growing in our family. And so the summer that I finished my first year in college, actually as I was finishing up my first year in college as a 19-year-old, my dad and stepmom drove from Austin, Texas to a hospital in Dallas where in the newborn nursery, they picked up a little boy who was to be called ours. His name is Jonathan and he is my brother. Uh, we are 19 years apart in age. And he has since grown so much that it's hard for me to call him my little brother. Uh, this was taken the year that he outgrew me, which is many, many years ago. And it's interesting that when we go places as a family, people pick up on hints of resemblance. When they see um, the four of us together, they tell me that I look like my stepmom, and they tell Jonathan that he looks like my dad, and we just sort of smile and say thank you because there's no DNA connections between those four, but we do kind of resemble each other. It's interesting, too, the things that we've inherited from my dad, Jonathan and I, either through nature or nurture or just through the mystery that is family. But we both inherited my dad's natural night owl tendencies. Um, I inherited his musical ability and love for well-crafted words. And Jonathan, while I did not, Jonathan um, inherited his love for history and political science. I remember traveling to D.C. as a family when Jonathan was probably a kindergartner and uh, standing in one of the memorials as my dad told again one of the great stories of American history that he loves to tell. And I was, you know, in my early 20s, and I think I strained myself rolling my eyes so much because I had heard that story so many times that I could tell it myself. And so my dad finished the story, and I rolled my eyes one more time, and a little voice next to us said, tell it again, Daddy. <laughs> and my dad said, that's my son. 
So there, there are resemblances among us. Um, how, no matter how we came into this family, we're in it together. And, and Paul tells us when he's talking to the Galatians, there's, there are different ways to enter the family. You either grow into it or you're adopted into it. But the truth is that whichever way you enter, there is a moment of transition to full membership in the family. A kind of moment where you were an outsider once, and then suddenly you're an insider. Now for adopted children, that moment of transition is a pretty clear one. In our culture, that sometimes involves agencies and home studies and family courts. Some families celebrate a gotcha day, which is different from your birthday. It's the day we gotcha and brought you home to be part of our family. But those born into the family also have a moment of transition, a moment where they move from outsiders to insiders. Heirs, Paul tells us, when they are children are no different from slaves. They may live in the home, but they don't really have rights, even to the things that they will someday inherit. And so their coming of age marks their transition as a full member of the family. Paul says that the heirs, those who grow in the family, are subjects until a time that is set by the father. But in that moment of coming of age, a true transition does happen. Uh, those heirs are no longer equal to the status of the slaves in the family. They hold all the full rights and privileges of being a son or daughter. I always thought it was interesting that uh, my brother was born and adopted into our family right about the time that I was coming of age, that I was making that transition into adulthood. It made for a lot of deep reflection on my part about what family meant, about what I believed parenting should look like since 20-year-olds often uh, know far more before experience has taught them anything and a lot of deep reflection on what it meant to be a son or a daughter and a full heir, and what it meant to grow into the family, no matter your biology or your location. So once Paul unpacks for us those, those transitions into being fully part of the family of God, uh, for those who are no longer servants under the law, but sons and heirs, and, and about those Gentiles, too, who are adopted in with full rights, have the privilege to call God Abba, he spends the rest of this chapter, what we know as a chapter, addressing a problem. And the problem that Paul deals with in the remainder of this chapter is that someone has come along and taken the privileges of the Galatians away returning them, in effect, to slavery. Someone has come along and stripped their rights of full membership in the family and pushed them back down to the rank of slave. Who has done such a thing? It's the Galatians themselves. These foolish Galatians have been offered the rights and privileges of being heirs, but they of their own accord are returning to slavery when they've been offered the chance to be sons and daughters. They've been trying to earn their way like outsiders would through the law when they are already insiders through grace. Who does that kind of thing? We do. That's who. 
When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and earth against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. The prodigal story reminds us that it wasn't the father who introduced the idea that a son should slip in rank to servant. It was the son himself who thought up this crazy offer. It wasn't the father who came up with a plan of some sort of trial run where the son can re-enter the household at a lower level to prove through his good works and earn what he has disproven with his bad to deserve the rights of son and heir. I'll just be a servant. It's so much easier to earn than to really live as your son. Let me earn my way back to your good graces. Let me prove to you that I'm better than that, better than the way I acted before. And you know, I don't need to live in the big house. I don't really need to be loved, just let me work. Just let me back on the property. I'll be fine in the slaves' quarters. The son's view of the father was enough to get him home, but it wasn't enough to get him a place at the table. Repentance may bring us back, but it doesn't restore our identity. It's the father who does that. He reminds him of his identity. He, he declares to him, here are the shoes of sonship when slaves go barefoot. Here's the ring of identity with the father's name. Here's the robe of forgiveness. You've missed the point. You could never be my slave. You are my child. And the father's love was never based on the deeds. It was based on his identity, his belonging, his love in the family. That, that father's love, his view of him never changed. Only the son's view of the father changed. So when Paul talks to the Galatians about how we are fully brought into the family, whether outsiders adopted in or youngsters who come of age, he reminds them they have made a transition. They have grown up. They are no longer in a transactional model of servant or slave. They are now in a relational one. In a transactional model, their relationship was dependent on what they could give and what they could receive in return. It was all dependent on their work for the family, not their belonging in the family. But in this new relational model, their works no longer pave the way for their status. Instead, this loving status as children of God paves their way for their acts of response. In our household, our, our children have reached a certain age where they are getting to do chores. Um, they are now responsible for certain things in our household. They clear the table, they make their beds, they clean up their toys, they take out the trash. There are charts in our house with places for check marks. There are rewards for those chores. There are even bonuses at the end of the week if you complete all of them. And let me tell you, they are pumped about it. They love to work and earn. They are fighting each other to clear the table at dinner with major negotiations about who gets to take my plate to the sink and who gets to take their dad's bowl and cup. Who gets to put the ketchup back in the fridge? This is a major point of contention in my house. 
And I'm sure that will only continue for the next, you know, 15 years or so that they live under our roof, that they will love to work for our family. Although it's clear that there is law in our house and that they are responsible for fulfilling the law that we have given, it's also clear that our love for them is not rooted in their fulfillment of this law. They don't have to fulfill any requirements to be loved. That's not a reward. And rather than their desire to fulfill the law of our house um, being the thing that earns their place there, it actually just flows out of the love that we have for them. A seven and a four-year-old can keep that straight, that they are loved first and that they work and serve as members of our family alongside us out of the overflow of that love and belonging that will never quit, even if they do. Now, if children can keep that straight, who could get that wrong? We do. That's who. Never forget that there is another son in the story. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered the father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. It's not just the, the younger, the disobedient son who has mistaken the source of love as being dependent on his obedience or disobedience. It's the older one, too. Look, he says, all these years I've been what? Slaving. All this time, the father thought he had at least one son at home, but all he had was a slave. Someone who had traded down, who had given up their rights to that relational place the father had given him and traded back to the transactional where their whole relationship in his mind was based on how much he worked, how he slaved to deserve the father's love. The older brother is a good person. He's the kind of person the neighbors would have talked about in a good way. He, he's always helping the father. It's good, they'd say. It's good that he has one son when the other one rejected him and gave up on the family and shamed them. What a good boy. This is the son who makes National Honor Society, the one who earns merit badges. This is the one who is elected president of the youth group. This is the son who goes to seminary. His identity is found in his hard work for the father in being a good son, the shining star of his family while his brother runs away. His behavior has never been a problem. It's his attitude. Notice what he says when he speaks with anger and disdain, as if to a master who he believes is being unjust. All these years, all these years, I have been slaving for you. No thankfulness, no joy, no response to relationship, simply an act of earning. The younger brother wanted to come back home and be a servant, a slave. The older brother has that same idea of living in the father's house, that it's a matter of slaving and working and earning your blessings. All this time, all this time he's been home, and he didn't understand what was already his. 
the robe of forgiveness, the ring of identity, the shoes of sonship when slaves go barefoot. They've all been his all along. Has he been wearing them? Does he know what is his for the taking? His motivation seems to have been a fear of punishment and really a desire for reward, and, and that makes the father's heart sad. Because just as there's nothing that the first son could do to make the father love him any less, there is nothing that this son could do to make the father love him anymore. But they both sure try. The status of a child in a family is one who has rights, but their rights to a certain familiarity, a kind of relationship where they're able to call even someone of high ranking who other people bow before or call great titles, they're able to call that person Abba, Father. It carries a certain closeness to it. It's like the dad who was home with his little girl while his wife went out for the day. And she, this tiny little girl, set up a tea party for him. He was pleased and honored to be her only guest. And it didn't matter that his companions around the table were teddy bears and dolls, that the food was all imaginary. To him, it was delicious. Or that the only thing that was really served were little plastic teacups filled with water. He relished that time with his girl because of who she was, not because of her performance. He didn't wait for the steak and potatoes to be served up on China. She had given him already everything he longed for before she said anything in front of him. And then, then the mom came home and she walked in on this scene, the, the dad sitting perched on the edge of a tiny chair, being served plates of imaginary food and drinking up plastic teacups filled with water. And, and she asked just one question. You're aware that the only water she can reach is in the toilet, right? <laughs> God is not waiting for you to serve him a gourmet meal before you will win his approval and love. You have it already. Before you serve up anything of worth to the Father, you have his love already. When you stand before God, offering him as proof that you belong in his presence, your performance, your ministry, your grades, your degree, your obedient older brother status in the family that is so much better than all those brothers that have run away. You may think that you've earned a higher rank in the house, but in reality, all that you've offered him is a toilet water tea party. When we begin to see God in this transactional way that it's based on what we give to him, that we receive from him, we exchange our view of him for one that's based on work alone. And if we begin to see that in our very nature, in God's nature, it, it tends to bleed over into our other relationships. We turn relationships with other people into transactional ones, not relational places. 1 Corinthians 13 says, keep no record of wrongs, but sometimes you start keeping a record of rights. You unloaded the dishwasher. You put the kids to bed. You made the bed this week, six out of seven days. This record of rights 
will kill love just as easily as a record of wrongs. If you see people as transactional, you might withhold your full approval from them just a little bit until they realize how they need to improve. If you see people as transactional, you may begin to avoid the people that make you feel a little guilty or shamed or less than. Maybe you haven't lived up to some expectation you think that they have, and so when you come to a fork in the sidewalk, you pass the other way. If you see people as transactional, when you take out your phone to text a friend, you may look back at past texts and realize, wait, I'm the one initiating all the conversations. Maybe I'm the needy one in this friendship. Maybe they're just putting up with me. Keeping score is deadly to relationships. And it's amazing how they become filled with shame and regret when we place them in that transactional model. So what people does God want us to see in that transactional category? I mean, what people fall into the relational and who are the transactional ones? Is it like 20% and 80%, 50-50? You know, the, the checkout person in front of you at the checkout counter, they're clearly transactional. The, the person stopped in front of you at the stoplight who just won't go when it turns green because they're on their phone, that's a transaction you need to happen. Your professors are transactional, right? You're working for them for a grade. Your employers are transactional because you owe them payment for services or services for payment. What percentage of people am I allowed to see in this transactional category? How about this? You have never laid eyes on anyone who was not created in the image of God, loved deeply by him, and made for relationship. There is no transaction that could increase their worth to you, and no transaction that Christ has not already accomplished that could increase yours. 100%, 100% relationally loved. That's God's desire for us. No transaction necessary. Now, why would I preach on this at this point in the semester? as we wind down, or rather wind up, our anxiety about papers and grades and finishing things. Why at this point in the semester when working and grading and measuring up are so important, when walking across a stage at graduation becomes an attainable reality that has been worked for for so long? Why, when so many of those things could bleed over into our identities, do we need to hear again that we are loved? before we work, before we do, before we give to the Father, that he holds not clenched hands, but open arms. You are loved. You are a child. Your service will not earn you any greater status. And if Satan cannot make you run from home, he will entice you to live in the home with the spirit of a slave. If he cannot lure you with disobedience, he will absolutely use your obedience to lure you into a system of keeping points. If he cannot keep you from following the commandments, he will make you believe that you are keeping them in your own strength and are somehow better than those who are not. Paul is passionate about telling these Galatians that they've gotten it wrong. All 
wrong. He's so passionate about it that when he gets to the final verse that Will read for us, he slips into second person singular and begins addressing them not as y'all, but you. Because you have to hear this, not y'all. You have to internalize this. And when it slips away, you need to hear it again. You, singular, are no longer a slave. You, singular, are God's child. And since you, singular, are his child, he has made you a child and an heir. And he points the finger at the chest of the reader and taps it there again and again with every you. You are God's child. And as proof, he offers us one little word that does not come naturally out of human beings. It's the word Abba, and it's a gift. When my little brother was so tiny that he could not pronounce my name, when he learned to speak, he began calling me Jixa. Jessica had too many syllables in it, so Jixa it was. And he wasn't saying my name wrong. He was saying it the way he said it. And at the time, it was my favorite way that I had ever heard my name spoken. It became the way that he spoke, not as a mistake, but as an act of love. In every culture, children start to babble certain syllables early. And while mothers would love for the first babbling to sound like ma, 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 speech pathologists tell us that really the first sound that children make is often da, 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 da or ba-ba-ba-ba, or abba, abba. You don't get it right. You just get it the way you say it. Who would dare to call the most powerful being in the universe the first babbling syllable that could come to their lips? What God would accept such an offering that our hearts simply want to cry out to him, whatever we are capable of and accepted for. As we approach the table today, when we pray the Lord's Prayer together, we'll pray what Jesus taught us that we can say, our Abba. And unlike our holy imperfect tea party, God creates a holy perfect feast, a place for us to come and eat, a place where we're welcome the, the son made it home on his own strength, but he made it to the table on the love of the Father. Amen.